0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors, and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Firstly, it's worth saying you can obviously hear a lot of background noise. Unlike every other one of my intros, this one has actually had to be recorded on the fly. I am actually in London as I speak, having just finished a day of client workshops, and... I wanted to get the intro out for this, wanted to get the episode out because it's such a good one for you to listen to, and so I'm recording it live, so I apologize for any of the background noise you can hear. So who is today's guest? Today's guest is Dave Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Storm Consulting. He is also the chairman at Cytab and the non-executive director at I Am Compliant. Storm are a software consultancy that helps clients create web apps, digital platforms and web designs to engage their audience, elevate their brand and ultimately grow their business. Dave's story is truly unique, and having got to know Dave over the last couple of months, I knew he'd make a fantastic guest for this show. Unlike many of my guests who have started their businesses having spent years in their field, Dave and his co-founder Adam launched Storm Straight out of university, deciding that they would give it a go, and if it all went wrong, they could call it a gap year and go back to the graduate milk crowd. Needless to say, it worked out for them, and Storm is now a thriving consultancy with clients ranging from cutting-edge startups to global brands including Samsung, Yamaha, and Ubisoft. I regularly get messages from listeners considering what to do after they leave university, and in this interview, Dave shares some great insights on launching your own business and why doing it straight out of university may be one of the best opportunities you have. This interview isn't just for new graduates though. In Growing Storm, Dave and his co-founder Adam have built a successful business based on practices that many would not think could work in consulting, including, for example, not working on Friday afternoons and an unlimited holiday allowance for his team. We go into detail on Dave's management philosophy during this conversation and why practices like these and the principles that underpin them have helped Storm achieve the success it has. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dave, and it was fascinating to hear how he has successfully built the business that he wants, and a business that clients love, while shunning the norms of the traditional consulting model. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dave Kelly. Dave, welcome to the show. Hi. So, to kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you as well, it'd be great to just get an overview of your your career so far and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure thing, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's
1: going to be fun chatting. Yeah, so I, I'm 10 years out of out of university, which is where, where my career and story begins. I started my first company straight out of university, which was a, a consulting development firm, so building web software. I did that with one of my very best friends from school. Actually, I say one of my very best friends from school. My business partner, Adam, and I were at preschool together, uh, age two, down in Cornwall, where we grew up. So the story, I guess, could begin a long way back. But ultimately, he and I ended up at university together, graduated in 2009, which wasn't a fantastic year to do what our degrees were intended, which was investment banking. So 2009, not a great year for that. And instead, we decided that we would uh, follow one of our passions, which was to start a company in an area we really enjoyed, tech. We had been dabbling with it at university, And ultimately, we thought, if it doesn't work, we'll pretend it was a gap year. If it does work, it was the plan. So obviously, since it's worked, it was always the plan. And in that 10 years, we have done a few really interesting things. So the first few years of the business were growing a small consulting development firm. uh, And then over a period of time, we acquired and invested in some other businesses. uh, And I now sit roughly across three businesses, uh, most of my time spent in Storm, but I'm also the chairman at siteab and I'm non-exec advisor. I am, and I'm sure we'll come back to all those companies at some
0: point during the course of our uh, chat. And we definitely will, Dave. And I, I'd love to start with that piece around Storm. And actually, you know, like you said, that that 2009 decision to to go out on your own because there there is. So I I graduated shortly after you, 2010, and and yes, investment banking. It wasn't a great time time to go into that industry. And I'm fascinated. So I I have. A number of listeners who are going to graduate this year, and I also have listeners who have graduated a long, long ago but looking to launch their own business. Now, so often there's reasons not to. You know, there's. I've not got enough experience. I've not done it long enough. I haven't got the right badge on the CV. And I love the idea with your story, and it's worth saying for for listeners, we're in your your office in Central Bath today. You are. So, so. W-
1: welcome, listeners. <laughs> I hope the acoustics are good.
0: We we have we have Holly from your team taking some pictures so people can see what the lovely office is. But you know, things have gone very well for the business. And I'd love to almost go back right to that sort of first conversation. When you and Adam were thinking of doing this, you started with no CV, no experience. For that first sort of phase, how did you set about launching the business and actually getting those first few clients? Because it's always those first few that, that are the hardest to come across.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a there's a couple of things in there to unpack. I think the first is actually having the confidence to go for it out and out, even before you've decided how you're going to approach those first few. And I would say there's a healthy dose of naivety, basically, when you are uh, very fresh-faced. You, you don't know the challenges that are going to come and give you a, a clip around the ear, So you're not scared about them. And often you go for it. I'd also say that coming out of university, appreciate that when you and I... I I'm not sure, maybe you, you might have been caught by the slightly higher fees. Uh, I'm not sure.
0: I, uh, I think you might have been
1: in the three-odd thousand-pound-a-year bracket. I was the three-thousand-pound-a-year yeah. bracket. So I I the, was in like the thousand twelve pounds bracket, and certainly not in the, the nine-plus-grand bracket. So what that meant for me at the time is coming out of university, I didn't have huge debt. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I have all of those now. But back at the time, I also didn't have a great deal to lose. So hmm. essentially working at at my own pace, whether that was exceptionally quickly or slowly, for however much money I was willing to to earn, which wasn't a lot back then, was fine because I wasn't losing anything. And that's one of the reasons why I think starting straight out of university is is so uh, attractive, because you've got that safety net. Then coming on to your question, which is, if you do make that leap and say, hell, let's go for it, then how do you find your first few clients? And I'm trying to put myself back as kind of ten years ago me and, and answer that question because the, the advice I'd have given is <laughs> to ten years ago me is very different about how I would actually go around <laughs> getting those first clients. And I think what we what we did at the time was we were playing the I think we were playing the search engine optimization game. I genuinely remember we bought God knows how many domain names with variations of wording back back when Google was slightly less intelligent about filtering stuff like that out, we spent a lot of time at networking events. It was basically getting in front of people, as many physical people as we could in in, in any way we could, and then doing as much as we could online, which at the time was much easier in my view to do. And over time, it's a bit like, Planning a flywheel, you, you you start very slowly, but the, the more momentum you put into it, it builds up its own speed. And we ended up with clients referring clients referring clients, and it built over time. But yeah, it was a lot of FaceTime in in that early stage, and a lot
0: of gaming Google. And when you say that sort of SEO, that gaming Google piece was it, was it that you knew the business you wanted, and so you were buying all of the domains that would re, were relevant to that, or were you buying domains and seeing which one, which business idea? got the most hits to take that forward
1: the the former so we we, it was very simple things at the time the word digital hadn't really surfaced much people were still in the in the world of either traditional marketing or or website development so apps weren't huge back then software as a service was small 10 Mm. years ago And, and and so again just placing myself 10 years ago thinking about it we were we were buying domain names like web design bar web design bristol online software bath because ultimately those were the things that people typed into Google and at the time Google was rewarding domain names that matched search terms as long as the content on your website then also matched that and as long as people were linking to you with those words you you started to 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 rise up the rankings something that is is has long been quashed by Google you can no longer succeed in in quite such an easy way but yeah at the, at the time we 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 were doing that kind of thing just to to basically get enough options through the door and we were we were perfectly happy at the time to say if this brings us four clients, and actually only, only one of those is a remotely sane business prospect for us, that's fine. At the moment, we would rather be qualifying people out after they've come to us, because we don't know how much business we'll get, rather than trying to do pre-qualification and only get one. So it was it was a good learning curve. And I mean, at the, at the end of the day, given the services we were offering, it was also a really useful process to go through because it was something we could explain to our clients that they could do themselves in terms of their own businesses.
0: We'll come back to the sales piece because I think the, the confidence point you mentioned, you're quite right, you know, that is the, to go out at all, you have to have that confidence to do it. Now, the answer to this might just be, we were 21 and didn't know any better, but I almost, it seems like quite an, un, you know, in a good way, an unorthodox approach in that I I say, I, I know a lot of people who applied for graduate jobs, applying, I did the same. And, and I know when I was sort of 21, you sort of look at, you know, you take the investment banking websites, you look at a lot of these websites, I can never do this. It sounds amazing. I don't know what I'm doing. You've obviously gone, on, we can, we can take this service out and sell it. Was that just confidence that you and Adam had and, you know, was innate? Or was that something you had to, to build up? How did you get yourselves comfortable with going out and selling your services in that respect? Mm, interesting. So the first thing to say is that Adam and I had been selling stuff. Previously. so
1: we, we'd had little side businesses doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things so the, the concept of selling was something that i i have always been comfortable with and i forget the different things now but um you know coming up through i did business studies at some point during my what would have been gcse's and or well, my gcse years and oh gosh i i think it was called the young young entrepreneur society or something there were there were groups where you were encouraged to go and start a business with 100 pounds, and so the, the concept of selling itself was fine. And one thing I'd say about Adam and I is that we're 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 very complimentary in terms of skill sets. He he hates the idea of meeting people, let, let alone selling to them. <laughs> so for him, that's that's not where he wants to be. But he is fantastic in terms of his uh, ability to, to 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 code and to program. Whereas I was quite the opposite. The bit I love was getting out in front of people, meeting them and chatting. So so knowing how to sell, or at least having the confidence to try and sell, was fairly
0: well entrenched. The second half of your question was Well, so I think it it, it is that build of getting comfortable selling. And and maybe then we go back a little, because you, you mentioned you had multiple businesses where what were those and almost how did that evolution grow and your skills grow to get you to that point where at twenty one you thought, yeah, I can sell software to to the clients you were, were selling to then? We did all sorts of bits.
1: We had done some very basic web design when we were at university. And that was driven purely by the, I don't want to work behind a bar for minimum wage conundrum. So what is it that I have got that I can sell? And the other part of your question has just popped back into my head, which was essentially what gave us the confidence that we Mm. could make a sale. And that was exploiting a knowledge gap. So one thing that became very obvious to us was that there were a lot of people, both peers in academia, and businesses that we would either be meeting or talking to who had a huge knowledge gap when it came to the stuff that we felt was fairly par for the course. And ultimately, what we would do is go and exploit that knowledge gap. So even though we didn't know what we were selling, we were comfortable going and telling somebody what they were doing wrong. The other thing I'd say is both my degree and Adam's degree had placements, which were fantastic. And this is where we picked up quite a lot of that business knowledge gap. Adam and I worked in two very different businesses. One that I worked in was in, in purely in marketing. They were a traditional marketing company, very successful, still are very successful. But ultimately, when I joined, they were doing things like uh, branding and packaging for uh, Chelsea Football Club, Arsenal Football Club. They, they, they were in the big corporate worlds of producing stuff. And their digital offering, when I joined, was, was non-existent. And I knew huge about amounts about that because it's what I was doing in my, in my everyday life. So that, that was interesting because I was sat in a business thinking there's a product they could sell here and they aren't. And then the second, Adam and I both worked at a company together in Bath, which was involved in internet services. And we learned a huge amount about contract negotiation and sales because of the way they went about doing it for their clients with their service, which is more around security. And I'd say that also with both the businesses I was involved in and certainly the placement that Adam was at, we also learned a lot of things that we felt were... I'll say it, we're wrong. We we were sat there thinking, this is definitely not the best way of doing this thing. Now, at the time, it's easy to say that. You've never tried doing it, so you you might be completely wrong about that. But ultimately, we were sat there going, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of things not to do going on here. And you kind of get, as well I certainly do, get a little bit of a an itch to say, well, I'd like to do this, but not do all the things that I think are, are, are suboptimal or are wrong. And that also gave Adam and I a lot of confidence that the businesses we worked in were very much not perfect during our placements. And we'd spotted opportunities. And neither of us are not intelligent people. You know, ne- neither of us are immenser, but we're, we certainly can, we've got a few brain cells to rub together. So we, we, we could we could connect the dots and say, something around this, but with the stuff that we know, would probably make a, a fair whack of money. And, you know, it, I mean, it did, so... So so, so I guess we we were right, weren't we? um. Um,
0: Yeah. We'll come on to how you and Adam decided to work together. Because obviously you're friends for your whole lives, but that decision to work together always seems like an interesting one. So I'll I'll come back to that. But that point almost around starting the business and, and what you mentioned right back at the start of the interview around, almost you'd set yourself up. Because I really liked what you're saying around, you set this up as almost a gap year of we'll give it a go and, to see what happens? Was it as simple as that? Was the conversation, you know, a beer in a pub saying, well, let's give it a year and see what happens? Or did you set yourselves any criteria to almost decide if that year worked and then then run for it? What was your approach with with almost defining that?
1: We did. So we had some, it was purely based around um, salary, if I'm honest. And that, in, in retrospect, was very naive to to base success simply around what we were able to take out of the business. And ultimately, we didn't achieve it, but for for good reasons, which is that you know, I, I, don't, I genuinely don't remember what what the numbers were, but we we basically thought if we had gone in and done investment banking, well, where would we likely be after a year, after three mm. years, etc. And so we we kind of set a goal, and I don't know what it was. It was something like we'd be somewhere between twenty five and thirty thousand pound salary if we'd gone straight into the kind of graduate jobs. And so we said, well, wouldn't it be great if by the end of the first year we were we were kind of in that ballpark? And I think we were, but at the same time, I remember at point during the year, we weren't expecting to employ anybody during our first year. Mm. And we employed two people during our first year. Now, two salaries at, again, early salaries we were taking other grads, so we're probably paying them 20, 22,000 pounds. Because frankly, we were only being paid like 22, pounds £24,000. So we felt that was a pretty good deal at the time. Um, I'm not sure any of the staff in the building would enjoy those salaries uh, if they were offered them today. But you know, we, we realised that right there, we'd essentially halved our possible takeout of the business by employing two more people. But at the same time, we had a rule which we did discuss a few times. And that was quite simply, if we're trying to decide whether to employ somebody, if we don't, employ them, are we happy with where the business is and what it can achieve? If the answer is yes, then, well, there is no reason to employ them, or there is no definite reason to employ them. If the answer is no, we're not happy, then well, you have got to employ them. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether or not that means the business fails, or you don't get to take home the money you want, or, or whatever else, because you're not happy. So you, you have to employ them. And if employing them is the thing that tanks the business and it goes under, well, just as well you did that, because otherwise you may never have known or never realised and you'd have, you'd have kind of rolled along doing something subpar for, for however many years. And we, we, we played that rule for, for many years, which was just stopping and saying, well, are we happy to stop here then? And if the is no, great, welcome to the team, take a seat, off you go. And we'll, we'll sort the rubbish out later,
0: kind of thing. Just on that piece, is that happy in terms of where the business is scaling? Is that happy in terms of the the individual you're looking to hire? Was it both? What what was, it was happy in that that it, context? It was gut feeling about what was happiness at the time. So it was a combination of everything.
1: It was type of people working with, type of client, uh, flexibility of working, work life balance, salary. Yeah, it was. It was a just a. Are we happy with this right now? Mm. And then the answer was no. And we, we'll probably come on to this later. But it's worth highlighting that. The reason why we've grown the first company Storm to a, a size which is usually kind of fluctuates between kind of 10 and 15 people, but we don't want to go any bigger, is that we have reached that point where we are really happy with so many parts of the business. And the spare cash, that's, that's why we've been taking spare cash and putting it into our clients and investing in them rather than investing back into Storm. It's not because there isn't extra money to grow Storm if we wanted to, it's that we have reached that point of being exceptionally happy with what we have built, but not being satisfied long-term to sit with it. So we found that we, we actually have three companies in our building now. So you'll have met some of the other the, the folks while you've been here today. But of the other two businesses that that I sit on, there are team members in, in the building. So there are 20, what is it, 24, 25 people in this building today. Uh, there's more, uh, there's some elsewhere in Bristol and Bath, and there's a load more slightly further up north and across the three businesses. So we have grown, but not the business that we got to a really happy place with.
0: And you are right, we will, we will come on to that because I think there's a, a really interesting part around the, the philosophy and the why, because I know we've spoken before around the why you've chosen to do that. And I, I think just holding on that, that start, piece, this sort of the early years, and I, we'll come back to the point we were talking around, around actually that sales piece, because I can completely understand what you're saying around that graduate confidence and, and believing in your own abilities. And I'd be fascinated, you said networking events became a big thing for you. Actually, that how did you find it going out to your first few clients to go to those networking events where you're turning up as you know, 21-year-olds in, I can only assume, ill-fitting suits. I had a terribly <laughs> fitting suit at 21. You might not. You might have. No, no, we were in it, tech. You, uh, jeans and t-shirts. So actually, yeah, it was it was fine. There, if you didn't right? show up in a hoodie, you weren't hired. <laughs> 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 and, and actually... How did you find those early years, in ter- those, well, not early years, those sort of first few months in terms of getting those clients? Because I'm just thinking, particularly for graduates listening to this or, or undergraduates listening to this, thinking, they might be thinking, yeah, of course, I, you know, I believe in my abilities, I, of course I can do it, but hang on, if I'm going to go out to a client, they're going to take me seriously. How did, you, how did you overcome that? So this is very much
1: because of the industry we were in, but especially over the first few years that we were involved in tech. Tech was seen, and I still think probably is seen, as, as a young person's game. And actually, the age, I wouldn't say it necessarily played in our favour, but it very much wasn't against us. In as much as there are were, there were plenty of companies out there who think, oh, thank God, we've got a couple of 21, 23-year-olds who are telling us what is actually the current up-and-coming stuff or, or the way we should be doing things or mm. are spotting all this stuff. There are people who've graduated with you know, whatever his first-class degrees in computer science, like Adam did, and he's, he's come out and he's walking our... I'm going to be stereotypical here just to make a point, but let's say our 50-year-old IT manager Bob through, through something, it's, and those companies actually loved the fact that we were the young, slightly fresh people who were blasé about all of the business, business challenges that were perceived by saying, oh, I don't have to do that. Why don't you slap a bit of this technology on there? Don't be silly. Of course you can scale to that. That was actually refreshing for them. I'm not sure that is necessary... I, mean, I appreciate that a lot of your audience are in perhaps more traditional consulting. And I think that is actually a harder problem because, So again, this, this is stereotypical, but my view on that is that age and experience probably add up to ease of entry through a door. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine that as a traditional, if, uh, you know, certainly as a management consultant, I don't know how many 21-year-old management consultants you know, but you can certainly imagine trying to pitch yourself as a 21-year-old management consultant versus pitching yourself as a 45-year-old management consultant. Whereas if you're pitching yourself as a 21 year old tech genius versus a 45 year old tech genius, th- those scales are not even. I think I think the latter of those scenarios is, is an easier one. And so that's how we did it. You know, we 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 frankly bowled into plenty of places. Um, <laughs> didn't keep our mouths shut. Made it sound like we knew exactly what we talked about, which in a lot of cases we did, and in a lot of cases we didn't. But they didn't know that we didn't, which was even better. And uh, you know, the rest the rest kind of unfolds as you go.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a. It's a really interesting point that one around actually in tech it is having that that age is is an advantage and I think I would fully agree with you that for some the, you do hear some clients who frankly they do like having a bit of grey hair on the the sort of management consulting side but I I think that you could argue the same in tech there's plenty of people older than yourself who are sort of running tech firms that want to do things in tech and I think I don't know if this was the case but was there part of your offering that was actually you know was there part of the commercial model that actually moved the client in your favor because you were, you know, you're cheaper, okay, you're 21, you've got this experience, but you're going to be hands down cheaper than hiring in a, a big agency or a big firm. Was that part of a deliberate part of your offering? or certainly wasn't deliberate. Uh, yes, we were cheaper.
1: But the other thing that I think was quite interesting is that the sector wasn't particularly well formed and molded when we were when we were relatively new to it. So on one hand, you had what I'd call the traditional marketing firms, and they were really struggling at the time because... They were they were trying to transfer from a lot of print, a lot of magazine ads. So just taking, we, we, you know, we're in the beautiful city of Bath, which uh, is both home to to me and, and my office, and one um, well, you as well. As yeah, well. myself now. I was yes. going to say, yeah, we, we're we're almost neighbours now. But um, Future Publishing are based 250 meters down the road. And Future Publishing, when we started, were having a huge struggle, and had maybe six or seven years, if not more, of very hard times selling businesses, selling magazines, cutting staff. And the reason was they were trying to adapt from a traditional marketing, we make magazines for you know, for, for gaming companies or whatever, through to, oh my gosh, there's a thing called YouTube um, or Twitch. And most of the games are being sold because some guy who's 16 in... Germany and doesn't put trousers until lunchtime has got a YouTube channel, which has got more followers than we're selling magazines. And he's the one selling the games. So the publishers are interested in him now, not, not our magazine. Basically, companies were finding that, that the marketing firms weren't clear on their offer. They were probably overly priced because they were trying to compensate. And then at the other end, you've got very traditional tech companies trying to move into the, the new digital space who were more IT focused, but they didn't have great skills. They weren't used to essentially dealing with some of the things we consider now, frankly, far too obvious. User experience, customer journeys, they weren't considering psychology of, of how users would work. And so it left a bit of a vacuum in the middle. And so again, stepping into that irrespective of age and it was easy because it was a relatively empty void to fill, and a lot of people were, were were there shaping it. I remember when, again, in the, the early years of Storm, there was a a, a guy who who had a, a, a profound impact on me, um, a chap called Ryan Carson, who is now um, the CEO of a company called Treehouse, which is based out in the US. They're an e-learning company, a, a very good e-learning company, and they, they they teach people to, amongst other things, code. And at the time, he ran a, a an events company here in Bath called Carsonified, which. Ran Future of Web Design, Future of Web Apps, and a few other conferences. And they were huge. They were the, the conferences in, frankly, you know, getting on for in the world, certainly in, in Europe, which I, you know, I attended for a number of years. And the intersection between web design and web apps, out of which things like software as a service and, frankly, software platforms and all the stuff that we kind of were used to these days, it grew out of the people who were at those conferences were the ones frankly, partly shaping it. And you would get to know the guys who were writing the talks they were going to be delivering next year, and people would be sat on World Wide web committee developing the standards that you were going to be doing. So it really was a forming industry at the time.
0: And the, the other side of that, and I, the reason for asking some of these questions is I I think of some of the, the objections that I've heard from people around launching their own business, you know, not enough experience or you know, not found the right space. And I think the other one, and, and it almost talks to that exact answer of, when you think cutting edge, most people think London or, you know, Silicon Valley, you, you've got to go to one of those big cities. And I think the, the other really interesting thing around how you and Adam launched Storm is you launched in Bath and you've remained, like you say, we're in your lovely office in Bath, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the best city in the UK now. But having been in London, you know, that London has quite a London-centric view. And actually, how did you decide, or why did you decide to stay here and not not go to London, where you might have perceived it would have been easier to get clients or staff, or whatever it was. So we, we we wanted to be a big fish in a small pond,
1: rather than a small fish in a big pond. When we started, I had no idea if that was the right call or not. We obviously didn't go to London, so I've got nothing to compare it to. Only only speculation. But what I will say is that being down in in what is fast becoming but you brilliant know, Bristol and Bath are some of the biggest and fastest growing. Areas for tech companies, and I wish I had some statistics to quote to you. And I'm sure that there are certain people who I know who'll be kicking me, thinking, oh, Dave, why didn't you? Why didn't you mention these things?" But there are, you know, I, I don't like the word unicorn because I, I have a, a profound discomfort for for what it means. But there are some colossal companies. springing springing up. Um, there's a Ultra Haptics have just opened. Um, not everyone. They're a couple of years old now, but in in Bristol, a lot of big London companies moving. R&D and innovation facilities to West. I think there was a a campaign launched by Invest Bristol and Bath a couple of years ago called Go West and Get Some, which was basically the fact that we've got some of the best universities producing computer science talent over here. We've got networks, Silicon Southwest, uh, so networks and infrastructure of entrepreneurs and investors in in this area, which rival anywhere in the country. We're, We're an hour and a bit on the train from London. All of the people who are making plenty of money in London that are now my friends. So that's the small percentage are saying, I don't want to bring kids up in London. Let's go yeah. somewhere yeah. outside of London and mm. basically get get the lifestyle plus the technology. And you know what? The world has shrunk, and that's that's I'm saying that's blimmin' obvious. But mm. we we have storm clients all over the world. We you know we we do a lot of work in the US, and it doesn't matter. You can you can video chat you. I mean, you don't have to go and see people, so why, why be located somewhere where essentially your rent's going to be higher, the competition's going to be higher, the expected salaries are going to be higher, your cost of living as an entrepreneur is higher. Yeah, so the, the takeaway here, listeners, is don't start a business in London. <laughs> come come this way. <laughs> You're doing your part yeah, exactly, for the, yeah. the invest in Southwest. Yeah, but, exactly.
0: And, you know, I, I mean, with, with Create, engage, we, we fund the same. With, just before this, I was on a video call to a client, and actually that need for face-to-face is, is reducing. But I think it's, it is more to that how you find – I still find, and I don't know if you're the same, that that first conversation, sometimes that face-to-face is what, what sells people. And actually the doing it over video call, you can, but to that point around networking events and other things, that the face-to-face is, is important. But, you know, it's great for, for, the, for my listeners to hear, like you say, that I think when you say it as succinctly as you did, it makes perfect sense. You know, go go where's cheap, albeit Bath is not yeah. – <laughs> no, no, not top of your list there, and then build from there. And I think to that point around all of the technology that's out there. now, I mean, it's this is probably a cliched one that you've had many a time, but I'm sure you've got a, a good answer to it, which is for those computer science graduates who are coming out now, or even you know people who have maybe gone into a consulting, be it a software consulting or, or management consulting firm as a, a graduate and gone actually, you know, I'm not sure on this, or almost had. Done, the, done what you did the other way. So instead of having that placement year, did a year after and gone, actually, I can do this myself. I mean, yeah. How has the world changed in terms of if you were to do it again, would you do the same, obviously, maybe change the Google Ads approach, but would you be following that same approach you did? Or is there something or some things that have fundamentally shifted into how you would recommend anyone setting up like you did?
1: That's a good question. It's, it's very difficult because where we are now, I could give 10 year ago me plenty of advice of, of what to do and what not to do. I think that obviously, as we've just covered, there were certain circumstances around the, the birth of storm that made it a conducive environment to, to relatively easy success. You know we, we were always profitable, we never went into debt, we managed to, to be cash flow funded, to hire, to grow, to move offices, to take nice salaries and ultimately invest in. And I mean when you say it like that, you think oh, hell, wow, that was a good 10 years, wasn't it? And I'm sure that's not the typical journey for businesses as they start. So there were certain environmental factors that made that the case. Therefore, take the advice I'm about to give with a pinch of salt, which is if you can find uh, an industry where you may not necessarily be the most knowledgeable, but there is a, a new niche or there is a slightly underserviced area that you can essentially get a beachhead in, then it's very easy. If you can be very well known for one thing, it makes it much easier then to hop across. So I'm trying to think of a a good analogy here. I guess if you were, you know, uh, so what have we got on the table? There's some. There's, we've got some. We've got some water on the table. We've got some still water and some sparkling water. Right. So if we decided that we were gonna, we we had a nice spring in our garden, and we were making some great still bottled water. It's much easier from that point. to to get really well known for bottled water and then to go, let's go for sparkling water, let's go for flavored water, let's go for cordials, let's move into alcoholic drinks. So rather than trying to dive straight into alcoholic drinks or something where people would say, this is a crowded market. If you can start with one thing that you can do very well and you can get known for it and you can use it as your your beachhead and you can expand Mm. from it, that is an easier way than trying to necessarily dive into a very, very competitive Mm. market. And yeah obviously assess the environment you're moving into. And a huge amount of it comes down to the amount of risk you're willing to take. So you kind of have to go with your own. There is no correct amount of risk. Uh, Obviously, you you have to gauge what your tolerance is. I know that some people like to set themselves goals and say, well, I'm going to try something that's high risk for up to six months and see how it goes. Or maybe something that's low risk, but I'm only going to give myself three months because it's low risk, so it should work within that period of time. Or those are the kind of things you have, to, you have to go through in your head and set yourself something and then just go after them.
0: How important is the co-founder element? So I said we'd come back to sort of the, how you and Adam decided to go out together, but I know we've talked before a little bit about this. How, how critical for you in, if you were giving advice to 10 years younger, you again, how critical is that co-founder and that, that sort of synergy of skills to you? I can only speak from my own experience and I found it. Uh, phenomenal.
1: Adam's been an amazing support, and I, I hope you would say that the same of me. There, and there are a few reasons why I found um, co-founding pairs of people are... I hear the same things back from co-founders. So the first is that um, co-founders can help you level out the highs and the lows. So they're there to celebrate with you when stuff is going really well, which is a really big boost, and they're there to confide in or to run ideas past when you're at quite the opposite, When you're when you're well, some of your lowest. And I've also found that, quite interestingly, that in the lows, Adam and I don't tend to have the same lows. So it tends to be that if Adam is you know, a bit off about something, I, I might not be. And actually, that's really useful because you, 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 it's like, like waves cancelling each other out a bit. You, you kind of get that, that overall uplift. Also, sometimes with big decisions, all you need is confidence for another person to take them. And you can sit there questioning yourself over and over and over. And all you needed was someone else to say, yeah, give it a go. Which, which is tiny. They may not know more than you. They may be less involved in the decision, but somebody else you can trust who says, yeah, yeah, I think you yeah, go for it. Then then you, you do. And and all of a sudden that momentum goes goes a little bit quicker. The other thing I would say about co-founding um, complementary skills, which is the other part you said, a lot of people think that you need to find a co-founder like you. <laughs> I would actually say finding a co-founder who is almost as far from you as possible is really good.
0: Adam and I- Far from in terms of skills, in terms of no, no, distance. You don't want them anywhere near. No, um, yeah, yeah, you're
1: quite right. So um, you need to have shared values, but different skills. So any business starting up, we're kind of unwinding something entirely different here, so I'll keep it brief. But it's very important that when you start up a business, you're very clear as to two things. First of all, it's, it's purpose for being, for both you and your, your clients. What was the purpose for being? We could talk about purpose for an entire two hours if you wanted, and then the values by which you're going to achieve that purpose. So it might be, we're going to do it by you know ripping everybody off, right? Or quite the opposite. We're going to do it, and we're going to be ultimately nice to absolutely everybody, no questions asked. You have to set the values by a business. I'm kind of losing my thread of thought here at the moment. But coming back to founders, uh, that was it. So as long as you've got those shared values, then it's great to have really different skill sets. And... Adam and I didn't know this when we started. We we hadn't, that wasn't a conscious decision. We didn't sit down and kind of do a, a skills analysis and work out and do any sort of gap analysis to say, well, mm. we, we haven't got a finance person or whatever. We were just very lucky that we had similar values and decided that we also had similar passions to, to start a business and do something in this space. We had trust in each other and we went for it. It turns out that we're very lucky. We don't tread on each other's toes at mm. all. Adam has a very... Ring-fenced set of stuff that he is very comfortable doing and he's exceptionally good at. And I, again, I would hope he would say the same about me. But there, there are certain areas we cross over. We kind of do a, a monthly breakfast where we catch up on a load of stuff. And obviously, if it's needed, we can catch up on a daily basis. And in the earlier days, we worked a lot more closely together. I've now got more of a supporting team around me, and Adam's looking after an entire team of developers and sits as CTO across three companies in the same way as I'm CEO of one, chairman of one, and, and non-exec of one. So we, our, our individual roles have have kind of the Venn diagrams moved further apart in in as our roles have become more distinct so the areas we cross over have been become less and less and that's a really good thing i i i certainly have worked with companies where they've got two founding partners who clash because they're both very strong personalities have the same same skill set and ultimately both have a very strong opinion about the same things but you won't catch me having a huge opinion on uh technical direction we're going to be going or a, an architecture we'll be using and uh, at the same time as Adam's unlikely to to have a huge interest in exactly which clients we prioritize or work with over others. So we both have vested interests in the others, but neither
0: one of us feels like it's our domain when the other is is, is, is literally living in that domain in their, in their daily lives. This might be something that, because like you say, because how your relationship was, it's just not something that you two faced. And and it might be, thinking about it, something that maybe you've seen in, like you say, other businesses who either pitched to you or you know, you've, you've talked to about investing in it. And, and that is the question around, you made the point there of having shared values is key. And actually that point of working with one of your best friends and how you how you make that transition. Because I've had some guests who partnerships haven't worked out. I've had partnerships before that that didn't work out. And sometimes, personally, I, I think there can be a challenge between, it's like saying great friends don't make great housemates. And it's, I think the same with with business. But I'd be fascinated how, if that was something that you and at, sort of Adam had to deal with, and if not, whether you have seen it and gotten any advice for how to overcome that. Interesting you should mention housemates, because Adam and I lived together before we started Storm, and were living
1: together when we started Storm. So he and I were in the same halls at Bath University, a uh, very good university for anyone who's thinking about going to university. And we subsequently lived together, during our third and fourth years. And then when we graduated, we, I should say not, not just the two of us as in, it was, it, there were houses of four or five. And again, when we graduated, we were in a house of four, I say four, but it's always four plus everybody's boyfriend slash girlfriend. So it's usually a house of eight and you, you realize there's more toothbrushes than there are people. But that meant Adam and I had certainly well, using your, your analogy, we'd learn to live together. We knew that we weren't just great mates who met up and went down the pub, and then all of a sudden it was a shock that, you know, we don't wash up or something. It was a case that we we did have that slightly more personal experience of being in close proximity to each other for extended periods of time. As for whether or not it would work mm. if you didn't have that, I, I can only give some advice, which is that if you are entering into a business with somebody, and I would probably say this is the same if it was a partner, and by partner I mean, I mean loved one partner as opposed to business partner, is that you are exceptionally clear where possible with two things. First of all, the definition of roles and who is, has responsibility for what. But more importantly is expectation. As long as you are very, very clear with what you can expect of each other, what's considered kosher, what's not, then you will be far more likely to succeed in, in that successful relationship. And I would also say, having in, in it, which is an addendum to the expectations, having a framework through which you are able to update those expectations. Because what your expectations when you start a business of your business partner will change over time. And if you don't have a framework in place in order to change those, then you essentially are stuck with, with age old expectations. So, what that, that can be a, an annual, for example, check in where you say, right every year we're going to sit down and we're going to redraw the expectations of each other. And we expect one of the expectations is that they will change. And it it just provides that that ease and that framework that you can start to get along. You know, other than that, if something doesn't does crop up that isn't good, then you you ultimately have to air it Mm. sitting on. It isn't going to do anyone any favors.
0: Yeah. And I, I really like that point around the expectations. From my personal experiences, looking back, I think that's exactly where it's gone wrong. And I imagine if you speak to others who, you know, like you say, it's very much, I guess, like a life partner relationship. If you're expecting different things, you're never going to be satisfied and, and it'll break up. And, and I like that point around framework. And do you literally get a pad of paper and sort of, is it as I expect do you expect? Is it softer than that? How do you, I don't well, know if it's something you, that you I, do? That, you,
1: you can purchase that IP for low low, <laughs> low low price. And
0: it's on your website. I'll link to the website. Yeah, exactly. Well. to the website. Uh, email me. Do
1: you know we, we've used all sorts of different techniques, and I think that the we don't write it down anymore. But but I, that's because, as I said, that our Venn diagrams have have parted. Where I think, and we we're we're in a bit of a groove, so there's no need to. But the execution isn't the bit that matters. It's it's actually following that principle if it works for you. So I don't mind whether or not you smear it and ketchup on the wall, right, or you write it on a napkin or, or whatever. Having that clarity is is the piece that matters.
0: Is that actually having the conversation? Yeah. And- like you say then, then how you capture it's entirely up to you. Precisely. Whether we you, you, you use your your form that you'll now upload to your website or
1: yeah, I need to create that, by the way, that IP I just told you. That's <laughs> I need to do that.
0: This is what you did with the first few clients. I yeah, think.
1: exactly. We sat there going, Oh yeah, of course, of course we have one of those.
0: <laughs> so moving moving on a bit to you know, I think we've we've covered that sort of starting piece in, in some really great detail. And I know that for for people who are sort of at that same state they'll find that really useful. And I think it was the point you made around sort of, it sounds like it's been the 10 years of just success after success. And it might be the case, so this could be a short answer. But I'd be really interested in in actually the challenges and the setbacks, actually looking back over those sort of that 10 year journey so far. What have been those biggest challenges as you've you've grown the business? And how did you overcome them? The interesting thing is I'm immediately thinking about three different businesses
1: that I'm involved in. And I'm immediately thinking that each of those businesses has had very different challenges in its first few years. So I'll take Storm as an example. Challenges with, with growing. Learning that not everybody is going to love what you do and that you can't Deliver a perfect service every time. Therefore, you're going to have people annoyed at you as you go. That's that's quite hard to take. And learning clients yeah, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, clients. Uh, learning what to do in those situations. Because as much as we'd all love to say, well, we're going to start a business and everything we do, everyone's going to love it. That's not going to happen. The first, or not even the first, the, between numbers one and five of your staff to leave you, you take that exceptionally personally. That mm. you know, the first member of staff who says, "Well, you know, hiring a first member of staff is is a huge high." It's Somebody who said, "Yes, I not only believe in you, but I like your company, I'm going to come and work for you." Yes, this is marvelous. More people on the bandwagon. The first person who rings the bell and asks to get off the bus, you think, "What? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> you know, wh- why do you not want to work for us anymore?" Um, so that can be that can be pretty. Uh, uh, do you know what? That was eased by one of the, one of our very first one of our very first um, employees actually got poached by one of the uk's most well thought of competitors no one geographically near where we were so genuinely not a, com- a competitor but that was actually one of the nicest people who ever left not just being a nice person who left but to be poached by someone who you massively look up to you thought well wow, we must be doing something right if, yeah. if our guys are going to go and work there so yeah that, that was that was tricky i think that Pivoting and, and adjusting in flight to your business is, is an interesting one as well. Because again, when you start, you have an idea, you, you formulate it, and you kind of, in those early days, you're doing lots of small maneuvers, you're iterating, you're trying to find the thing or the methodology. And when you found it, you think, oh my gosh, we have a thing here, it's going, it's, the train is moving in the right direction. And you have a destination in mind, but it's naive to assume that that's it forever. And I think a lot of people start out, they forget that you have to make lots of in-flight corrections. I'm
0: switching between trains and airplanes here. so it's all right. I'm I'm not saying you are, but I'm terrible with metaphors. (laughs) Well, I try. I've said this a few times. You pretty much are saying I'm terrible with metaphors. Well, uh, Um, what I'm saying is I can understand. I translate terrible metaphor perfectly. So planes, (laughs) trains, trains, ships, whatever you
1: want. Great. So we were on a ship. And um, Basically, that 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 concept that every software you have to kind of reflect and look at yourself and say, oh, I didn't realize, are we really still this thing? And over the 10 years, we went far more from, in the early days, doing a high proportion of websites. And now we do a much, much higher proportion of software. And back in the early day, a lot of what we were doing was heavily creative, and that was being valued. And now creative is valued less in our industry, still highly valued, but not as much. But now we're we're doing lots of projects in AI. We've got some robots upstairs, some
0: pepper. Yeah, I've, I've seen them.
1: Yeah, humanoid robots doing stuff. And, and the thing is, you those are there's natural ebb and flow of a business where it kind of naturally takes a course and gets m- almost magnetically drawn off to, mm. to one way or the other. But but the flip side is a, an astute business leader will be keeping an eye on it and almost spot before the tide draws you in any one direction. That that is the way to go. And we'll make a, make a course adjustment and, and take you in that direction since we're on a ship. And, and I think that- You that's, can do that on planes as well. Yeah, I you can it, do so that yeah. just without the tide. Um, that That's exactly the kind of thing that you, you need to keep an eye on. And learning, that was very difficult. Mm. But then, you know, I, I said, uh, looking at the other two businesses, so very briefly touching on uh, siteab So siteab for those who don't want to have to Google it, is now the world's largest life science data provider, which might sound Awfully grand, but it does save the life science industry just over a billion dollars a year. So wow. it's it's not not to be scoffed at. And ultimately it machine reads and then uses some kind of AI to work out the contents of millions and millions of academic papers, has deals with all sorts of publishers to get hold of these. And it creates data sets on the back of them. So it, it takes that unstructured data, reads the academic papers, turns it into structured data, sells the data. And when those guys started and I say those guys I, I was there at the start because it was a spin-out from the University of Bath with uh, Dr. Andrew Chalmers, who was a cancer researcher and uh, lecturer at the university. When we spun the company out, we had to we didn't realize it at the time, because we assumed everybody was using lots of data, and we were just going to be providing more cool stuff. Turned out people weren't using lots of data. You've got colossal, multi-multi-billion-dollar market cap pharma companies were basing huge strategic decisions as to whether or not to move their operation into China on the back of 100 surveys. What are we doing? So we had to educate a market. We had to genuinely educate the market about the need for our product. And that's something that certainly didn't crop up the store at all. But that was by far the biggest challenge with Siteab with is actually teaching people that the product was amazing and they wanted it. Luckily, we've got to a point now where people think the product's amazing and they want it. And Siteab. Has got a smaller staff than Storm, but the, 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 the turnover and stuff outstrips Storm and the profitability outstrips Storm because it's a very different model. And again, to, uh, so I am the third company that that, I'm, that I'm, in, I'm involved in and invested in, started off life as a safety compliance tool. So it was an online platform where you could go and take, for example, your school, and it would tell you all of the things your school needed to do from a health and safety point of view to remain compliant. It tell you how to do them, how to audit them, how to keep track of them. Um, and it would stop you having to use a facilities management company at 10,000, 15,000 pounds a year to come and do essentially very basic things like, does the fire alarm still work? So you can get your... So you get a checklist that says, check fire alarm. Yeah. So that's where it started. And um, again, it, for those guys, the, the biggest learning was that whilst that was what people were telling them the need was, and indeed, they have a very strong customer base from that, that the actual unknown need of their customers was in e-learning. Again, so that was that was something it took them a long time to to find their way. And that wasn't so much a business pivot. It was it was an unknown, unknown for their clients. Is that right if I said that? An unknown something yeah. their clients didn't know they would need. And 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 they so didn't, the, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. So they, they wanted what I am were offering, but they didn't know that there was something that I am could easily offer that was hugely valuable to them. And luckily, I am now in that market and again, again doing exceptionally well. But that discovery process was the biggest challenge for IAM. And making sure that the company kept going for long enough whilst that discovery ultimately came to fruition. And then we decided what to do with that information. So yeah, all these companies have different challenges as you go. And I, I'm not sure there, there are a set of known challenges. I think it's about what you do when, you, when you're confronted with one. I mean, one thing that I know we, I don't want to move backwards in
0: our, in our chats. But I, jump, I, I warn listeners usually that we'll jump <laughs> around. So jump, jump around Dave. Something I think is very useful for a, a coach or a mentor
1: basically. And I, I would say that is not just a starting up thing. Like, frankly, I, I have a coach and a mentor now, and I hope to have, you know, for decades to come. And I also coach and mentor businesses. So yeah. I, I pass on down the chain, uh, the stuff that I'm <laughs> getting from up high. And, and that I think is, is a really interesting one because like I said, the challenges are, are often timely or, or, or indeed if they're nasty, they're not timely, but they're time specific. They are contextual from an organizational or a, um, an industry point of view. And often they are entirely fluke out of the blue that one of your biggest competitors has gone bust and what do you do about it? Or uh, you know, a huge multinational has decided they're going to do a product very similar to yours and what are you going to do about it? And yeah, there's plenty of plenty of things. There's a, a guys uh, who used to be in offices just opposite us and um, who I believe is still going, 222 Sports, created a product called Swim Tag, which was basically... Well, the thing is, at the time, it was Fitbit for in the water. Okay. And Fitbit weren't doing it in the water. So... Oh, there might be something in there. And then Apple Watch came along and said, yeah, it's waterproof. Uh, wh- what do you do? You know, oh, gosh, okay. Now, luckily, they have pivoted in, they found a niche and they're still going. But um, those are the kind of things you can't see them coming. And having a mentor or a coach or somebody who's who's there to help you spot and and, and work quickly with those things is probably the best you can do when there are challenges.
0: Well, and I, I massively agree on the point on men- mentorship, and it's something a number of my other guests have said. And it's, it's frankly one of the reasons I launched this podcast, because there are people wherever you are on your journey there's someone before you someone after you exactly. and you can learn from the one ahead of you and you can can guide the one behind you and and maybe then this is advice you've had from mentors or or is more in that known unknown space and actually that's for you as a leader so so like you say those sort of business events some of those you just come out of left field the apple watch like you say but actually what for you has been those biggest inflection points in terms of your skill set your capability where you felt you really had to to change or adjust something in, in your own approach to to keep the business moving. So, yeah, interesting. There are, in my view, there are a couple of very, let, let's talk about
1: the, the the triggers for those. So mm. why do you need to change or, or make a step change? Now, I think you are either somebody who has an absolute thirst for knowledge and learning. And I actually think that, that that's a double-edged sword so on one hand, you can be an exceptionally well-read person, and you you are constantly pushing, but it probably means that you're you, you're essentially a, a chief exec who's got each itchy feet, and you'll probably find that your employees will have tactics employed to stop your ideas steamrolling over the status quo of a business and basically stop it ping-ponging around all over the place, right? But but ultimately, somebody like that will drive. You know, you, you look at somebody like, imagine going to a meeting with Elon Musk, mm. someone like that. He sat there one day and says, today, guys, I'm thinking we're going to put whatever it is, 12,000 satellites into orbit to create uh, a, new, a new internet, which is, uh, I read this week is his latest thing. He's just sent 60 up to, to give it a test. The other is basically something happens in your business, an event occurs that forces you to change. I, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm thinking about this and that, um, that we're very lucky that there are certain things that we have never had to, we've never had to overcome I'm, in, in business. But you know, the first time you ever get into a legal dispute with, with what might be an employee, which luckily we never have, um, or, or uh, a customer, which unfortunately we have in the past. And that, you know, gosh, there's a there's a learning curve right there because you spend a lot of time around people who know a lot about it. and. All of a sudden you you don't become an expert, but you soak up a huge amount of of information about that that incident or that that opportunity, and most likely you then adapt or adjust your business to be either more resilient towards that thing in the future, which has never happened previously, or to take advantage of that opportunity which wasn't there previously so going back to this question around what 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 would make you adapt if a customer did go bust? that's not happened to us, mm. but a, a, a very good friend of mine has that incident and where there were basically two of them in the market and one just decided one day they were packing up shop and that was done. They, they didn't know what, they, they didn't know whether to celebrate or cry. They had so many orders flooding through because all the people were moving supplier. Huge challenges because they couldn't fulfill everything. They, they weren't built for that scale that quickly. They didn't want to lose it. And yeah, it's a huge challenge so for me personally, the biggest things have been, yeah, just a a bunch of incidents. And I'm I'm racking my brains to think if there are any that really stand out as like absolute pivotal moments. And I would probably say not. And I'll tell you exactly why not. And this is actually where you and I met. So PS, spoiler alert, um, I'm about to promote a business that um, I have been a member of for a long time but i have no vested interest in um which is uh exact foundation run by a really nice chap called mike wilshire and that is where you and i met it was, yeah. the summer barbecue so Exact foundation and this is again another another little tip for people who've got something similar in their area it's uh, an Exacts network it's a bit like you can name a few vistage and
0: what else exists I'll, I'll be honest so i know a lot of them exist i'm actually because again the the londoner in me there were so many networking events well they don't there weren't as many of those small business yeah, peer so, groups. Yeah, peer groups. Um, so so yeah, very so different. Give the explainer. A,
1: very different to being a just so we're clear, a, a networking group. This is a group of uh what's the way Exec Foundation runs is a group of 10 or so CEOs who will meet monthly. And I've been a member for nearly eight years now. So when I say a, it's a very tight knit group. We happen to have a speaker in the morning, in the afternoon, we do a sounding board where we speak in depth about each other's businesses and the challenges that are being presented. And, you know, there are some phenomenal business leaders that I get to spend time with every month and you get to know them exceptionally personally, not just their businesses, but it's, it's a very sharing environment. And you know, the point being, a lot of the incidents that I think have changed my view have not actually been Storm's incidents. They're basically, it have been my friends at Exact Foundation have come in and said, oh my God, we are, I don't know, let's make something up someone's offered to buy us or we're being bought out. I wish our, you know, someone has managed to get a hold of too many shares. It's like we mm. didn't realize. And um, yeah, you know, you're along for the ride because they've turned up to discuss that with you and your peers and they want your opinion on what they should do next. And whether or not you like it, that, that incident may not have occurred in your business, but you not only are emotionally invested in what's happening because these guys are and have been your friends for a long time, but at the same time, you are you're giving advice, you're thinking, well, what would I do in this situation? What is my advice to you know, Janet or John or whoever? What am I gonna what am I gonna say? And the next month, or frankly, by text, you'll probably text them a couple of weeks later saying, What happened? Yeah. do you still have a job? <laughs> Does your business still exist? And there have been lots and lots of those, which I, I, I can't tell you about because it, the, the whole point about the Tech yeah. Foundation is it is, is, is utterly confidential, but there's been some absolute Blinders of things where someone's come in and dropped an absolute bomb of what's happening in their business, and you go, Wow, God, I'm glad that's not me or quite the opposite, Wow, how did you manage that? I want one of those um, and and that that level of continuous experiential you know input which makes you think and makes you discuss and and debate with peers is is absolutely invaluable, and that certainly has driven the learning for storm
0: um over 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 the last 10 years no it, really good point and i think yeah if you, i store a lot of quotes and then rarely remember whose quotes they are so if someone can attribute this it might not i might even butcher Ooh, the quote but, but actually it might be me and well i'm sure it's, um, Probably not. there is a wall of quotes from dave in the room <laughs> there's not that's a, oh, i made that up um but but actually that you know you're, the, the power of mentoring is learning from other people's mistakes and not having to to learn it yourself by doing it, I think it's a really powerful point, and and it might be through, let's like say, Exec foundation again. I I'd be interested on those examples are very much almost in that sort of unknown, unknown. What's going to come from out of the blue? The external factors. Thinking the the internal side. How what have been the big those big learnings for you? Yeah, you know, as you've grown a team, as you've grown your offerings, as you've taken the office. Was there any? Were there any points where you thought, wow, this is going from the two of you to four to six to ten? I, you know, I'm just throwing numbers out to, to spark ideas. But was there any point where you thought, wow, I've really got to change. I've got to up my game or I've got to focus on something different. And if so, what was that?
1: I don't think there have been any huge like, killer
0: de- defining moments like
1: that. Uh, I'd say that the the biggest has been when we had one of our, um, we still work with them. The US company, we used to do a huge amount of work with them. There came a point where frankly, we were probably bordering on doing fifty or sixty percent of our business with one company, and I mean I'm sure if if you're listening to this and you are lucky enough to to be able to relate to this, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they were paying well they were they were as if they were paying good great rates, they were paying well, like they sent cash every week, sometimes they would send money before we'd even told us what they wanted us to do with it, like oh, we've sent you fifty thousand uh, dollars we'll be letting you know what we want done with that later insane and you there, there, was a, there was a big point there where, at one point, you're riding the wave and you're thinking, This is fantastic. So many of our guys are utilized to, you've got a great relationship. Um, Adam and I were invited out to their retreat in the Hamptons. You think, You, you can't have a closer partnership and relationship and everything. Um, and there comes a point where you think, Hang on a minute, if we, if we carry on down here, at what point do we, are we doing 60, 70, 80% of our business with this one company? What does that mean for everybody else? What, what does that mean about the amount of time we're out there generating? New projects, which ultimately help us gain referral for new customers. What happens if this customer stops one day? And like I said, we, for for various reasons, which um, kind of were were quite timely, we still do a lot of work with them, but we we have scaled that back. And I think that was one of the biggest things that's occurred and has required intervention. It would be a more interesting story if I was saying, well, we didn't do anything. And all of a sudden it was 100% of our business and then they went pop. But I'm
0: afraid it's not an interesting story. <laughs> so
1: that's the best I've got to offer, Nick.
0: Why don't we Why don't we come on to, you mentioned it earlier. And I remember, so when we, we caught up you know, a few weeks ago, maybe it was a month, maybe it feels longer ago, yeah. but when we caught up last day, the, and you mentioned it a bit earlier, actually that point around the conscious decision not to grow Storm. Because I think particularly in in the tech space and it's worth saying you know my world is very much the management consultant so this is all secondhand. but but you look at a lot of the rhetoric on social media on tech crunch and sites like that and and the yardstick for success the yardstick for happiness is how big is my business and in the consulting space there are people who again want to grow their business as big as possible and what really struck me when we we spoke that last time was was that active decision and the reason why i'd love to get you to sort of give that Overview to my listeners, almost why you you mentioned earlier we kept growing till we decided we were happy. How did you decide you were happy and why why there? So a few little bits about Storm's DNA.
1: We don't work on Friday afternoons, maybe not at all on Fridays. That's that's in the pipeline. We have an unlimited leave policy. So you can take as much leave as you need as long as you fulfill your essentially what you have been set to do, which is peer, peer-managed. Peer we take everybody away on holiday at least once a year somewhere nice which is a it, it's it's its team building but it's not framed as team building as in we don't do team
0: building activities and we certainly don't
1: work it's
0: so it is a, it's a it's a retreat in that sense yeah so you're by the pool it's not you're in there with a flip chart precisely or-
1: there, there are no no board markers allowed we do team lunches very frequently you can work from pretty much wherever you want whatever hours you want as long as the work gets done and it doesn't impact your 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 peers so These were all some things that we set out fairly early on in Storm that we aspired to because we wanted to build a company that we wanted to work for. There's absolutely, in my view, no point building a company that's yours when there's a better company to work for down the road. Well, stop doing that and go and work for them, especially if you can earn better money. And so taking you through the kind of thought process um, in in order to answer your question, we, we also are fairly cognizant of the fact that there comes a point as an entrepreneur when you end up giving a huge amount of the money you earn away to Her Majesty's revenue and customs. And I appreciate it's something you've got to do because society, etc. However, that doesn't mean I don't, loathe giving money away, like huge amounts of your your salary. It's it's money that frankly is pr- been taxed very many times. And then ultimately when you come to spend it, you've got to spend VAT you've got to pay VAT again. Like anyway, like we, we could end up in another hour's rant about that. But what that meant was that there was a point at which the money that we were earning, we were giving more and more away. And so extra effort and growth wasn't getting us more financially. And frankly the finance that Adam and I were taking home are oh, taking home gave us very comfortable lifestyles. So that's point one. The second is we were working with people, and I mean both clients and staff, who we really genuinely liked, you know, bordering on, well, certainly the staff, you can call friends, and a lot of clients you can call friends. And that's great because I have seen plenty of agencies grow, and because they need to service more people, they also then need a sales team, and they need to feed the sales team, and you, you end up kind of feeding the beast, and you probably need a finance director, and the finance director doesn't want to do any of the actual admin work so he gets a, a you know a finance junior in and all of a sudden your payrolls doubled, but the the fee earners have only gone up by ten percent so you take on a load more fee earners and then you need a bigger sales team you get where I'm going with this basically you're building in my view stress into a business there's a, um, a concept called crossing the chasm' I'm trying to Rack
0: my brains, at Daniel Priestley crossing the desert. At- it's not. It's not. It's, it's not definitely. Daniel. It's
1: de- there's definitely a chasm involved. You know, in, in my head, it's like, um, you know, kind of Dukes of Hazard kind of over the over, over the chasm. But th- there are cultural chasms in businesses that also appear, and there's no finite point as when you hit X staff, it happens. But it's well known that around 20 to, say, 40 staff, there is a cultural chasm, sometimes 15 to 30, sometimes 25, whatever. And one thing that we absolutely love about what we've got, and the reason I listed all those things initially, is that we love the culture. We love the relatively stress-free working environment. We love the flexibility, and we love the people. And we could see that slightly further down the line, if we carried on growing through headcount, there'd be marginal gain in profitability. Certainly, in the short term, maybe in the very long term, when you get out the other side, you, you get those economies of scale again. But in the middle ground, there was a marginal gain in, in profitability, if anything, a drop in profitability, a lot more stress, a huge change in culture, and we were in the wrong, you know we were, we were in the phase of life where i 've now got two kids, and frankly, I would quite happily work three days a week rather than five if I could get away with it and so we we, we, we said, well, why? why would we go and take on a load more people? Let's, let's keep ourselves as specialists. And in fact, because we are turning down more business, we can pick business which is either A, more interesting to us, or B, more profitable. So it doesn't mean you can't grow the business. In fact, all we've done is grow our profit margin. We've not grown our headcount. Sure, salaries go up, so you're still, your bottom line still goes up. But yeah, we've, got, we've grown our profit every year for the last five years plus on the basis, on the basis of not taking on more heads. Yes, there's a limit to that. You know, I'm, I'm not sat here thinking, well, we're gonna be a 50 million pound organization with a 20 million pound profit. That'd be lovely. That's not gonna happen. And so that's why we ended up investing in some other companies, because ultimately ambition, I would say that 80% of our ambition was was kind of ticked off in the reaching that that lovely level with Storm. We were great, this is fantastic. We're working some amazing clients or some amazing projects with some amazing employees fantastic and earning good money but there's still that little itch entrepreneurial itch in the back of the head which is yeah but we're currently not taking money out of the business so it's sitting in a bank account which is frankly depreciating in value because as any business owner out there will know business bank accounts do not give you any sort of return on the money you've got so we've got money sat around in the business and we're wondering what to do with it there's only so much that's a sensible buffer six months nine months worth of running costs like frankly if you've even got that you're very lucky Beyond that, you're thinking well, it's just silly. It sat there, so why not go and invest it in some of our clients? So we invested some in Siteabs, some in Iam, uh, another company we've we've recently started called Bank Shield. Um, we're eyeing up a few others as well, and what that has meant is it's given us that slightly longer term vision. It it gives us they non service companies, as in. They're not day-rate companies, basically. They, they all have a product.
0: And was that de- deliberate? Is, that, is there a yeah. criteria to that?
1: Two reasons. First of all, they have got the ability to scale without staff. So we, we immediately avoid that possibility. You can have a team of staff, 10 staff doing 20 million profit, no problem at all, if, if you find the right SaaS product. And because you can, you can outsource loads of stuff like customer service, you don't have to have internal headcount to do it. And also, they've, they're much more likely to be sold. So a tech agency like Storm... The number of people who are likely to want to buy that business is, is, is significantly smaller than, uh, you know, a SaaS company which can show growth in user numbers, sticky products, good, the metrics around you know churn is low, lifetime value of the customer are high, good EBITDA, all the stuff that you might need to see for an acquisition. So Adam and I obviously have a good stake in all the companies that we we're involved in, and it's a case where Storm will carry on doing what it's doing, and it's great fun. But if one of these other businesses ever ever sells, then, you know, off to the Bahamas in the yachts. But not seriously. But, but my, my, my point there is that that is the piece that is the, what's the word? That's the, the, the moonshot? Is that, is that a thing? Or have I made that up? Yeah, a,
0: no, no yeah, I, think that, yeah. I think that's a Google term. Cool, you there you go. So,
1: so those, those are the moonshots. Those, those are like the, the punts, is the word I was probably looking for, which is we'll, we'll do these things. And if they come off, they're going to come off big. And Storm is the, let's not stress out and
0: have a really great fun time doing what we love with people we really enjoy. You mentioned it there around, like you say, with the moonshots or the punts, you you might be able to sell them, exit and you go to the Bahamas or stay in the lovely part of Bath that we both live and get a tractor.
1: Maybe invite some neighbors around for a few
0: beers. Well, some neighbors would love to come. <laughs> um, was there ever a conversation for you of actually, because I've had other consulting entrepreneurs on the show who have built to sell or have just sold through virtue of someone coming along at the right time. Was there ever that conversation of, well, should we follow a similar model to what you've done? But actually. Should we grow Storm, sell Storm, and then do that sort of VC or that angel investor type role? And if so, why didn't you? Yes, there was a conversation. And
1: funnily enough, if we were to have the conversation again now, the outcome may be different. At the time, having not invested ourselves, not been involved in other investment rounds, you know, A series, B series, all, all the stuff that comes with going through having... So, you know, I am, have recently gone through a, a round of investment the chairman is is a is a, an exceptionally well known businessman in the UK. Um, I, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say. You could probably look it up. But anyway, uh, my my point being that we'd never been through any of that stuff, and so it was a bit of a a bit of an unknown. So when when we were looking at should we build to sell, the naive us was saying I, I don't know enough about whether that's a good thing or not. All we were looking at is a wall. Thinking to do that, I assume you have to put in a huge amount of effort, and you you are basically. Taking your business and you probably have to cut it again. I'm saying probably here because this is this this was our thinking and does not necessarily reflect my current thinking. But you probably have to cut out a lot of the fun and make sure that your your profit margins are as high as they possibly can be. And yeah, gosh, this, again, I, I had no idea back then about the amount of work that needs to go in ahead of a sale to get so much admin ready for the point at which you wish to sell. I mean, some companies stall for God knows how long just so they can get to the point where companies company's going through due, due diligence. Uh, you know, I, I actually have friends now who, a friend in Bristol, uh, again, another little, little why not drop in as a, a company who, who were one of our clients for many years called Shaw & Co. And um, yeah, they will help your business get ready to be sold as well as help you seek people. And so I spent time with Jim, Jim Shaw, who, who founded the company. And before I spent time with, with Jim, we basically, I, I had no idea that there was so much prep and so anyway, all of this comp- compiles down to the fact that it seemed like a huge amount of effort for not, no guarantees payback, right? And that, that was it. When, and when things are going really well, you think, it's a bit like, why, why rock the boat? And so that's why that conversation, when we had it, came out saying, no, we won't. But... We do like the idea of what was it we said, um, Barbados, or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, I can't beh- remember. what it was. Beh- Bahamas, it Yacht was. Somewhere, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. We, we we do like we do like the idea of having neighbors around for some beers. So
0: we still have that ambition. Hence the other companies. You sort of mentioned that answer. Dave then wouldn't have. Dave now might have a different view. What's what's Dave's view now?
1: <laughs> no well, it's, it's not so much a different view. It's just I now actually have, having been an investor myself and been in companies who have had subsequent investment. I feel. Like, I understand the process a lot more. So I, I know what to look for. I know what's good what's bad. If we ever want to... Oh, the irony now is that we we don't need Storm to be that punt, to, to build, to do that, because we have other irons in the fire and Storm's going on quite nicely. So we've never re-asked the question, should we, should we sell Storm? But I feel like if we had the conversation again now, I would have a much clearer picture of the likely success versus effort that would go into to achieve it and also i would have a better network of people around me to help me achieve that i'd go and have a chat with jim as a starter you know it, it, those kind of things that you only you need learn as you go along so i can't say that we would if we if, if adam and i
0: had the conversation again we'd change our minds but, but it would be it would be different that's for sure so one thing that just struck me from the what you were saying there around the the decision to to sort of cap the business at that 10 to 15 and, and the impact that has on, on the bottom line and the profiting take from it, is actually the other side of, of that equation is, is, I guess, the effort side. And just thinking about what you've, you said there in terms of the other businesses you work with, and you mentioned you're chairman of one, non-exec of one, Adam's CTO of all three, is actually the time component. Because I think when people hear service business, like you highlighted this, Product businesses are, if you get the right one, SaaS business, infinitely scalable. Yeah. You know, teams of 10, like you said, 20 million profit. But actually, how have you gone about approaching the structuring of, of Storm and, and the, I guess the processes and the, the work you need to put in to keep the business going at that level while giving you that free time to work with these other businesses, or I'm sure you won't mind me saying going to watch the odd film at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, which I'm sure you don't do that often. Just just, just every other Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) What, if any, steps did you consciously take to to free up that time to give you the flexibility to do these other businesses and and other things? I'm going to – this might sound odd, but I didn't realise what I was doing until very
1: recently. Okay. And I now understand – a model that we were using, which actually I'm afraid is going to come back to one of you, one, something you, you you hinted that you might ask me towards the very end, and it it's to do with understanding your business's flywheel. So specifically, it is, let me give you the example of what I believe. Stor- I'm going to try it from memory to use Storm's flywheel because this will be it'll be better to do that in order to to explain. So Storm, um, if you if you're imagining yourself a circle here at the top, Storm deliver um, impactful and successful projects. What does that allow? That means that we get more people referring other companies or prospects to us. What does that mean? It means that we have a greater number of projects that we can choose from and ultimately can choose either higher profit projects or more interesting projects. What does that allow? Well, those higher profit and higher interest projects mean that the staff that we can maintain and and, and basically have, we can offer higher salaries and we can have more engaged staff who ultimately can deliver we're coming back to the start of the flywheel again now the the better projects and so if you can get that wheel turning and you think okay so ultimately what do i need to get that started and the thing that you need to get that started is is meeting enough people with cool enough opportunities to start the flywheel and then you can stop doing that because ultimately they're self-referring and they're going around and round and round and this is brilliant and i didn't realize that that is essentially what we had been doing at Storm, and that the bit of the flywheel I personally need to push on is essentially the odd meeting of the right people and the selection process of which ones are the interesting ones that are going to keep the flywheel ticking along. So imagine you've got the wheel spinning and every often you're grabbing it and giving it a flick. And, and, and I hadn't appreciated that in order for that to keep going around, I only need to be there to do that odd flick and then it'll carry on spinning. And I can walk off to another wheel and give that a flick. It's a bit like spinning plates. That's a better analogy. I should have got my spinning plates, Nick. Why didn't I go spinning plates? <laughs> You're but there now, Dave. I'm so there. there. Spinning we're plates. spinning plates. So got some plates spinning. Yeah. And, and, and the point is that some people, you, know, are, you and I have talked, we talked this morning uh, in, in the car, actually, about the difference between working in your business and working on your business. At the very beginning, I was very much working in my business. I was required nine to five doing a thing. And as we've gone along, I'm now far more working on my business. And because the structure beneath me is able to do the delivery and my role has been, as you say, engineered, or I think that's what you're getting at, have I structured it such that this is possible, that I can, I can spin the flywheel. And I'm not sure whether it was ever intentional, which again is, I think, where you were getting at. The introduction of the other companies sort of forced the hand where, I don't know, I, I think it'd be very interesting and obviously it's risky, but if any bus- if every business owner was able to have a a complete free pass for three months where they could basically attempt to extract themselves and know that there was guaranteed going to be no loss to their business, or they could reset it and go again at the end. How much you genuinely need to be in your business and how much you are essentially genuinely adding value. and um, you could, If you could work out that sweet spot where you add maximum value for minimum effort, that balance, then you would... You would ultimately be getting more out of your business. That's the logic. Because of the other businesses that, that became involved and the, their demands on my time, I was forced essentially to become slightly more efficient. And that has led me to this point of efficiency with Storm where... So this morning, as you all know, I was in, rarely for me, two two-hour meetings. But both of those really were, back to the analogy, a huge spin on, on, on the wheel. They were key meetings at key stages with key people, that um, in terms of that, I probably won't need to touch for quite a long time. They've just freed me up for a very long time. I've, I've put the ball back in someone else's court now. And that's something that, having become conscious of it, I now seek to both exploit and replicate wherever I can. I try to make sure that the bits that I'm involved in are only pushes on the flywheel and not me becoming a part of it
0: where I am required to get around. And, around. and two bits on that, we will try and keep with the metaphor here, but the two parts there that be interested how you did is, and I, I, you can tell me in which order these went, is actually the first part is getting yourself comfortable with with exactly that of extracting yourself from the being in the business to being to working on and actually that removing that sense of effort equals output, which is obviously one of the challenges in, in the services side. Why don't we start there? And let's, we'll, we'll go from there and I'll, then I'll throw the other one in. How did you get comfortable with taking your step back? Do you know what? I had no
1: problem at all. Um, I had no problem at all. This is one of the things that separates Adam and I, and I guess this also draws a little golden thread between being very clear with the expectations of the outputs of somebody. So we have had another one of the things I should have mentioned with Storm. This is a really good golden thread, this actually, Nick, You've, you've, you've nailed it. We've tried to be output measuring rather than input measuring for a very long time. So we don't measure the number of hours that staff spend doing stuff at Storm. We measure the outputs. And... That means that, as I said, if they want to work at 3 a.m. and they have a really great spell, fantastic. There's no point in being in the office at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if they're hitting their head against a brick wall. That's that's no advantage to anybody. And hold that in your head for a moment. The other thing is, if you've got a very clear expectation with somebody in terms of what those outputs should be, i.e. the only thing you're measuring, as long as somebody is delivering the expected outputs and you're only measuring the outputs, then the input shouldn't matter to you whatsoever. and therefore. You you are almost already at ease and comfortable with the fact that your input doesn't have to be the number of hours in the day. And that that's absolutely critical. So as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's almost an optimization task. That the, the game, inverted commas, for me is can I still deliver my expected and measurable outputs each week by putting less time in? That's the bit I'm trying to optimize. Okay, I did it, I I did, I did my outputs in, I don't know. 26 hours last week, let's go for 25 hours this week and 24 hours the week afterwards. And so it's, it's not a case of getting comfortable with it. It's yeah, it's, it's optimization. And that's actually something that Adam and I do share in common is we are both prolific optimizers. I mean, Adam takes it to another level. I mean, if, if you uh, if you ever go around for dinner at Adam's house, his, his kitchen is optimized in terms of like where you have to reach to get things based on the process of cooking you're gonna be He he admits this himself, he optimizes. Everything in his, his walk to work will be optimized,
0: the whole lot. And he and I do that. So the, the comfort is almost um, second nature to us. So it's in that optimizing piece. And I, I, I'm going to come back to the output versus input, because the, and it's the conversation we had in the car around the selling that to clients. So I want to I just want to put that on the shelf. But that optimizing, how do you or how have you optimized to know for those pushes on the flywheel or the, the spinning plate, how to know which are the key meetings? Is there sort of a subconscious criteria you use or is it gut feel? How have you learned which ones you should take to add optimum spin to that flywheel? So I think there's there's an element of gut feel. You, you Certainly,
1: I get a sense of which bits of my day job are providing ma- maximum value and which bits seem to be a little bit... And it's not so much that they're, they're only necessary begun. Um, maybe I'm somebody who it, it, it just is natural whether or not I I'm providing value or not. But I, I very much get a profound, profound sense when I'm not providing value. And that annoys me. But rather than trying to yeah, so, so, so I just try and cut that out. And that there is a, there is a, again, joining your wall of people who I can't remember who said it, there is a lovely phrase which is essentially that you should keep or internalize what is key, but outsource what is critical. So Key to Storm's business might be, well, it's actually the delivery of projects. Critical to Storm's business is the bookkeeping. You could not do Storm without the bookkeeping. You could not do Storm without the HR. They are critical, but they're not key. So get rid of them, get someone else to do them. Move them off your plate. Make space for the things actually key to your business. And that's that's a really interesting one. If you find yourself doing something critical, but not key, at least ask yourself the question, could, could someone else be doing this critical service? The building, right? This building we're in right now, it's critical to the business, but I didn't build it. I don't do the maintenance on it. I don't paint the walls. I don't run the heating. I don't, you know, go to the well and fill up and bring the water in. All oh, that stuff's critical, right? And when, I know. I know. You laugh when I use that analogy, but that is, if you if you follow that to its nth degree through your business and ask yourself the same question as to whether or not it is genuinely something that you, as the founder and CEO, should be spending time on, then it's a great exercise to do with your, your employees as well. We we mm. do when people, especially if they're moving into senior roles, we get them to look at their junior roles and say okay go and highlight all the stuff that's actually key and all the stuff that you do because you have to and it's needed and what can we either move to somebody else or what can we outsource or what can we get rid of entirely
0: yeah i really like that and i i do agree i think there's a lot and um, so i'm a big tim Ferriss fan i don't know I, i'm not sure you some people have very strong views either way on it but at the heart of all of the, the writing he puts out is, is exactly that of do you need to do everything? And my background in management consulting prior to this was process improvement. And exactly right. You know, the the amount of nonsense people do, because there's an old cliche in the process space, of it's, that's the way we've always done it. And actually, very often, if you just simply stopping things can be the quickest way to improvement. And I, I, I completely agree. I, the thing that I, I wanted to come back to around that point around output focus is, I also completely agree that, that that's the area to focus on. The, the challenge, and and I'm interested in, in this from sort of your sales side, is actually how that then translates when you're going to to clients or going for resourcing. Let's say you're selling a project. How do you translate what clients know, which is usually days days or hours, into then your output? Do you actually have that value, the conversation all, you know, all consultants wish they had around actually value-based pricing, or do you still have to almost translate value back into a, a palatable day number that you can then explain to a client. How do you, how do you approach that to keep output focused in an input focused buying world?
1: And the way we approach that is very carefully. Yeah, with, with the utmost delicacy. So the answer is, uh, as you will probably have got by now, heavily caveated. Ultimately, with a lot of the projects, we... We calculate our pricing based on how long we think it will take us to do, mm. ultimately. Basically, we will we leave padding in where we know it's necessary. We will try and make efficiencies where we know they are useful. You are cognizant of the fact that you're competing potentially against others. And so, let's say for ease of numbers, we were doing a ten-day project at a thousand-pound day rate. Well, so we're looking at ten thousand pounds. So it will be quoted as ten thousand pounds. If we feel like it is a high-value skill set, then our day rate is £1,500, not £1,000. So the place we're introducing the value is at the day rate level, which is being calculated up. But ultimately, we don't place the value on the guys who are estimating. So the guys upstairs are told to estimate based on how long they genuinely think it will take, not based on how long it's going to... They don't know how much we're going to charge a a company. And we actually have different day rates as and we're open with this with our clients we have different day rates based on all sorts of things how long you've been a client we may have legacy day rates that you've been involved in whether or not we invest in a business what space you're in whether you're a particularly ethical or a charitable business you might well get a discounted day rate the urgency that your project needs to basically there are lots of things that help us Mm. flex that day rate and we're we're open with clients about it and tell them if they want to access one of the lower day rates that these are the things they need to do in, in order to do so but ultimately, that's where the value comes in. The guys estimating are just saying it's 10 days. And therefore, once you have got past that, and we're saying 10 days, 1,000 pounds, is 10 grand, that goes on a shelf. The client's expectation is no longer, mm. we need to work for 10 days. Their expectation is at the end of that 10 days, thing will exist. I hope you have coded thing for me. Right, great. Now, if that takes one of your developers 11 days in in time, well, whoops you You're misestimated and tough luck if it takes nine days, well, hey you won yeah, great news, and you win some, and you do some that that's obvious right and And the other thing is that as i as i have we've alluded to in 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 your question as well, if you're output focused, the output will not be days, the output will be is thing complete and so if thing gets completed over seven nights between two a m and five a m so be it lovely thank you very happy. Well done on outputting the thing you said you were going to do. And, and and the client will be delighted because their expectation was set in terms of what they were getting and how much it was going to cost them. There are those, this is the caveat, who work on a day rate. So there are plenty of clients who, they don't know what they're going to want on an almost a day-to-day basis. And so they just say, well, we're going to pay you a day rate and we'll keep sending the work and you keep doing it and we'll keep sending the cash. And you think that sounds nice. You just have to have a a more open conversation with those clients about the fact that some days you'll be very productive and some days you won't be as productive. Some days you might be working early, some days you might be working late. And we do keep a piece of time tracking software, which we built ourselves, which uh, listeners, you, you cannot have because it isn't accessible to the public, although it should be. Adam should do that because it's it's beautiful. It's called Minim, which also is a really nice name. Play on you know timing there, you see, like in the musical world. Don't worry. Um, so Minim keeps track of essentially how long people are spending on a particular project. And we leave it down to our developers, um, our creative team and stuff to, to log the time. They can choose whether or not that time is billable or not. So if they feel like something they're doing is more research in order to solve the problem rather than solving the problem, They'll make the call as to whether or not that essentially goes towards the client's time. And we're very open with that log with our clients. They can see what the time's been spent on. And ultimately, if they want to flag anything and say, well, I'm not really sure you should have logged time there. And I forget, I should know, how many hours do we have in a day? I think it's seven and a half. I don't know why it's seven and a half. It might be seven, it might be eight. But in my mind, seven and a half is stuck. And that is the number of hours that we make sure our clients are aware we call a day for whatever
0: reason and therefore their day rate will equate to that if they're working that way so something something building on that and i appreciate we're diving right into the detail here but i they're topics i've not touched on with anyone else so i think they're really you know really fascinating lens to add and it's actually it was the point you mentioned around because it, it follows on quite nicely around the the unlimited holiday and i ask about it because i'm sure others have asked about it but you are the first guest i've had on who has that policy and it sounds like you've made it work successfully and i I'd be really interested in sort of how that's worked and the pluses and minuses. Because I've read, you know, for articles I've read have said everything from it's the best thing ever to it just completely caused chaos or caused mass confusion among the team. Because actually, if I don't know I've got 30 days, 25 or whatever it is, how many can I take? How many Janet or Jane, who I think you mentioned earlier, how many do they take? You know, how does that work? Yeah, the the fictitious Jane, she takes hundreds of days here.
1: So the first thing to say is the reason why you'll be reading that it it often doesn't work is because it absolutely does not work for every type of company. So if you've got a company where you've got a customer service arm, which needs somebody manning a customer service desk or something, they can't just take holiday whenever they fancy because there's no one manning customer service. So And and I think also with a company where you've got a split. So interestingly, and I would note that we were doing this long before Richard Branson, but Richard Branson announced a few years ago that he was doing unlimited holiday But specifically, and this was the key piece, it was for, don't quote me, senior management only. Or at least, if I might have got that bit wrong, but it was of a particular grade of staff.
0: So so seniority.
1: Basically, it was a a subset of his staff. It wasn't anyone who works at Virgin Anywhere. It was this set of people will get it. And the reason he did that wasn't because he was being mean to the others. It's because it only works for that set. And it works for us. So the, the way in which we basically, the way in which we work is we have an exceptionally collaborative approach with our team about the work they are going to be taking on. And this partly stems from the fact that we have more work than we are able to do purposely because we want to choose it. What that means is that the staff do get a large say in which projects they would like to work on. So it might be they say, I don't fancy that, and therefore Mm -hmm. we won't take the project because the members of staff who would be working on it aren't excited by it, and that's not good for anyone. But because we've got that very collaborative approach with our staff in terms of what they work on, they essentially also sign up to, inverted commas, the projects they're going to work on. So it's 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 co-creating their year schedule of saying, okay, so we've got a three and a half month, four month project coming up. Let's take the fictitious Jane, and Jane's going to be our developer, great. And we'll say to her, first of all, we need you to estimate this, and she says it's going to be however many days. And then we say, okay, go and speak to our ops manager and our project team and work out a um, project plan for it. That means that you can deliver it over the you know, between now and and wherever. If you need extra resource, let's know. If you're taking if you want to take some holiday during there, let's know. And basically they'll plan that chunk. And so Jane can tell, I'd like to have a couple of weeks off in the middle or i to have a week off in the end, whatever they want. And ultimately, all that's got to happen is that piece of work has got to be delivered as as agreed. Now, if someone is if someone finishes early, then they might want to take some extra holiday. Uh, If they're falling behind, it's entirely up to them as to whether or not they want to try and swap some stuff with a colleague or whether they want to shift some of their holiday to do it or whether we need to bring in extra resource. But ultimately, we try to leave it up to staff to do that management. And the way that we make sure people don't take the mick, which I think would probably be a question very quickly.
0: It was was going to be the the next question is for the cynics who are listening, and just for anyone listening, that feels like the number one concern. If you give me unlimited holiday, am I going to take 364 days off? So basically, in order to have a project plan uh, approved, it has to be peer
1: reviewed. So you then have to take it to at least one of your peers who will look at your estimates, what you've planned to do, the outputs, the time over which you've done it. And they will have to agree as to whether or not you are making the numbers up. So they can't say, well, you've clearly left yourself four weeks at the end of this because you know it won't take that long and you're going to sneakily have work for each holiday. They'll say, that's probably about two weeks worth of work. So make sure you at least put two weeks in. So there's an element of making sure people don't manipulate the numbers mm. uh, from a peer point of
0: view. How does that work? Sorry if, it, if I've missed it, but, but within project, I sort of get that. I guess you're thinking of the cynic who goes, okay, well, you'll do one project. I think you just won't take any on for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, so, I mean,
1: that has never occurred. If you want to go back to a contractual point of view, the way it is worded in that contract is that you have a certain number of days holiday simply because that is a legal requirement, that you must give staff a certain amount of holiday. So it's in there.
0: Oh, wait, you can't legally say unlimited. You have to. Um, I, Oh, and neither of us are lawyers, but I just... I
1: don't know if you could legally say unlimited. I, I think you have to... That basically, there's a certain amount you have to make sure they take
0: for presumably
1: mental health and well-being reasons, right? It then essentially has a clause that's saying an additional holiday on top of this can be given at uh i I forget the i forget the exact wording but it's essentially at the discretion of your line manager manager or significant peer groups discretion so it means it's not up to one person whether or not you get it there are there are a number of ways you can get that additionally and it normally happens as i said in that peer-led way so your peers are not going to be happy with you taking 364 days off they're going to go you're not earning money for the company therefore i'm not getting any pay rises
0: Mm. so
1: so no your manager could equally say, "Well, you should take a bit more time, or you've only done one project this year." So there are there are basically there are breaks. We have never had to fall back on at any point one of those and be critical with somebody. And I think that again is in terms of the reason why this works or doesn't work. If you hire people, hire on attitude, and then train on skills, or ultimately fire on skills if they're no good. But Hiring on attitude—that's a huge part of the competency when we when we hire—is making sure somebody fits with the the values and the attitude we expect for in the company. And we don't have—I don't—I please say—I don't think we've ever hired anyone who is trying to game that system. People see that system as a privilege; they don't want it taken away. They all benefit from having more holiday
0: through it. Therefore, they don't want to muck around with it. Yeah, I think, and I always find this as the challenge that you get to. To the end, and there's so many more topics to talk about. But I think <laughs> that's a really, really interesting point. That if we had time, we we would unpack. In fact, let's just—I'll touch on it briefly on that point around that attitude. How, and it might be because of the size storm. Is how do you hire for attitude? How, particularly when it's—I'm thinking again because the firm is you know, such a close-knit group. How do you make sure that someone will fit in and that they're not just giving you, I've had other guests call it sort of that interview persona, that interview face. How how do you do that? So there's, I think there's a difference
1: as to how it can be done and how we do it. So the larger you get, the more efficient you have to be. And there are plenty of essentially attitude based tests that you can get people to answer questions or rate and order statements that will start to eke these things out. You know, I mean, we never have, but I know companies that do do things like Myers Briggs, color profiling. They start to give you an inkling. We have very specifically met measures, essentially of, of, that we we they're not they're not measures. That's that's not that's not correct. We know what certain people sound like when they answer questions, and it's not the answer they give; it's the way in which they answer the question. And that's ten years' worth of experience of sitting in lots of interviews. So that's the way we do it. You know, we have the same people on interview panels. I personally interview everybody that works the business. And again, that's something you can't do when you've got a huge business. A CEO cannot do that. But pretty much everybody that joins the business will be interviewed by myself and Adam at some point. And that might be an interview where we're basically just talking to them. We're not asking them interview questions in, in, the, in, the, in the sense you would normally expect to. But you ask some very specific questions that, that tease that kind of stuff out. And you either form a very good gut feel about somebody... It's, not, it's more than a gut feel because it's, it's experientially driven. But it's, it, as you get to be a big bigger company, it doesn't mean that you can't. You shouldn't basically, in my view anyway, you shouldn't pass or try and pass the, the buck in terms of, well, we can't hire on values because it's not possible. We just have to hire on competencies. There are ways that you can become more in touch with the, the, the values and the attitudes of the people you've got working for you. The, the other secret is that if, you've, if you're if you not confident in trying to hire for values, then Damn well have a good process of working them out when someone's joined you and fire people if they don't match. There's nothing worse than having somebody who's evidently not got the right attitude and you just let them linger in a business. Get, get rid of them like as soon as physically possible if that becomes you know obvious during the period in
0: which it's perfectly reasonable to assess somebody for those criteria and realize they are not what you thought they were going to be. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you say that, Mike. So the last, the last guest out on the show was Charlie Hodgson. You know, you're a rugby fan. So yeah. Saracens. And he, he was telling the story of actually how they got so successful, which was, and I, I didn't realize this, but back in 2010 chopped a lot of the first team for exactly that reason. They didn't fit with the values and it was that values that led to where they are now. And so just, a, again, a, Another anecdote to add to your And again, your I know I
1: know this is this is exact foundation knowledge bubbling up from somewhere or other, but there are loads of studies around it only takes one person out of a team of ten or whatever to to drag the whole team down by twenty or thirty percent.
0: Basically the detractors are yeah. far heavier than the
1: what's the what's the opposite of a detractor, Nick?
0: I'm gonna say well, a net promoter, it's promoter. A promoter. But, but I was reaching for something that has you're going you, to
1: say a protractor, but no, it's one of those things. That, of, that's, that's the curvy the, thing yeah, that you that's draw. You but... used to.
0: You, you used for oh, yeah. GCSEs, and you've never used since. Exactly. That and the, um, I'm going to get them wrong now. Protractor's the the one that draws circles. What's the triangle? No, a compass draws. Compass circles. protractor is the one that's yeah. uh, Showing. The... I'll tell you. I'll tell <laughs> you I tell you. And I do have a G, an A in GCSE maths. But go oh, on. congratulations.
1: I was going to say well, that's, the, that, <laughs> that's that's that's. Uh... That, by by today's
0: standards that's uh, like a, a c minus isn't it now you get up to a star 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 plus or whatever they're they're doing my <laughs> so my nephew is currently going through his GCSEs and yes the um grade inflation is a thing it is silly. Um,
1: so what I was going to say is for the first time ever in I say ever since I learned it um Sokotoa trig trigonometry i used that for the first time in i don't know 15 years and I actually had to do some trigonometry for a project the other day. And I sat there going, trigonometry, how to do- <gasps> soccer tower, which is the acronym for how you
0: work out the, the different. The- Why were you doing trigonometry for a project? If you can, I just. It,
1: um, it's, it, it would probably take me a, a, a fair time to explain, but it was to do with visually representing something on a wheel. But yeah, it's the interesting, thing. I just thought at the time, wow, this is something that's just been buried in my back brain for, for the last 15 years. And all of a sudden it's useful. Thank goodness that I, I did that lesson. <laughs> so anyway, we
0: digress. We do digress. I've got, so the last two questions that we're going to come on to, but got enough time for this one, because it's just off our conversation. And I, actually, no, I'll, I'll hold it as part of the, the last question. So the first of my two last questions is actually around books. And we talked about learning and gaining knowledge. And I am a, an avid reader, albeit I must say, since I've stopped commuting as much, I find it much harder to get audiobooks and podcasts in. So that's my, my sort of mid year resolution to myself. But maybe you can inspire me. And I, I'd love to get your recommendations or the book or books that you have gifted most or, or found most impactful that was gifted to you. Well,
1: funnily, funnily enough, I gave you one of the books I was going to mention earlier, which is Turning the Flywheel. And uh, as I said, it's, it's, it has resonated with me. Um, quite well and i think it's such a simple concept for so many small businesses so jim collins mm-hmm. the jim collins uh, uh good good, to, good great, to great yeah obviously um i you could probably pull the book out of your bag and, and tell me what the sub subline is but it's something like a an addendum to what does it say uh turning the flywheel a monograph to a company good to great a monograph that's i can never remember so essentially the 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 premise we have already been through is if you can identify your flywheel within, within your business and understand that, first of all, does everybody push in the same direction? Because you can't have someone pushing against the flywheel, that just slows it down. But I've given that book a handful of times now. Uh, and the reason I give it is, first of all, listeners cannot see this, but it is a short book. It is not a big, it is, it is a monograph, as they say, I don't know what, 30, 40 pages of not tiny text. It makes a very powerful, impactful point in a very short space of time. And for me, it is something that almost every business, in fact, I'm going to go and say it, every business could either as a whole business or within a business unit or function could at least assess themselves on and apply. And so, yeah, if you are passing Bath, Fourteen New Bond Streets and want a copy. Ring the doorbell, explain why the hell you've rung my doorbell, and ask for a copy of the book. And remind me I did this podcast, of course. And I will, I will dig a copy out for you because I have a few. Or just go and, um, you know, Amazon Plus, other booksellers are available. It's red, so you should spot it easily. Uh, red is in the color, by the way. I, that's obvious to Nick and I. Not red as in I have read it.
0: Yeah, it's one of the one one of the small drawbacks of an audio only show. <laughs> Indeed, um, and. I have many listeners who have reached out to former guests. I don't think I'm yet, I'm yet to have one call on a former guest, so I will. I'll put a link to to your office, your website, um, and your email. Well, to whatever details you want to get. I shouldn't presume you want to give your email. I was, um, was going to put your, your address down, and you can just. <laughs> well, I don't have. I've, I've, I've only got my copy, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's treasured. It's a gift. And if someone wants to knock on your door, well, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to hear that they do. I haven't. Obviously, I'm going to go and read this, but it reminds me of a, a book. A uh, Another guest actually gifted me called The Path of... So it's from the chaps who, write, who do the do lectures. And I, I'm only saying that because I can't recall their names at this point, but they have a lovely flip book called The Path of the Doer. That if you're ever, to your point around those ebbs and flows, if you're ever sort of slightly down on that, where you are in the journey, 20 pages of pictures of how to achieve or something.
1: Fantastic. Sounds good.
0: So last question, Dave. And I, I'm going to throw... I, I was going to try and, and fudge a fourth person in, but I'm going to throw this in just to our, our conversation about school... GCSE's got me there. And it, it's more a hot topic because it's something that, given the age we are now, we assume, I certainly have family and, and friends of friends who are in this part. And, and it's only in, intended for a short answer, but I'm sure you'll have a view on it. Had your time again, would you, is university now as important to achieving success in business as it was, say, when you or I went? So, first of all, university
1: as a thing is phenomenal the experience of university, I would never give up at mm. all. I would, I would go, I wouldn't go a hundred times, that's silly to say, but if I had my time a hundred times, I would go every, every time. And that's partly for the, 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 the immersion. It's partly an absolute step change in terms of, of, of living, in terms of, yeah, there's so much with university. So I want to I put that in the can first. Specifically with your question though, is it conducive or useful in terms of starting and being successful in business? that's interesting for me yes and no was the degree itself hugely useful for business no absolutely not it was exceptionally broad i could have probably picked up a very similar amount of knowledge from you know, the internet the curation was was good right but not great so why on earth would i evangelize earlier on my university well the people i met mm. including the lecturers even if the content wasn't wasn't a million you know wasn't wasn't tiktok the lecturers of phenomenal. Well, And the placements were absolutely fundamental to me getting where I am, because as I said, they were almost a catalyst for me understanding that there was stuff out there which wasn't perfect and I could clearly do a better job. So I required university not only to develop myself as a person outside of business and to grow my confidence, but I required university to meet the right people. And I required university to go into those placements, which begs the question, could you do all those things without university, right? And the answer is probably. You could probably, as long as you knew those were the things that were the catalysts within uni- a university, you could probably achieve those out of university. And so, in terms of, you know, the, the the hot topic of should you go or should you not, if you are simply focused on that business idea, then I would say you could probably find yourself in a number of exceptional support groups. There's a I would love to give a shout out to, to an organization called Yena, Y-E-N-A. Mm-hmm. I know you know Ash Phillips, who, yeah. who founded it uh, personally. And Yenna is a, a young entrepreneurs network, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's the kind of place that, you know, if you weren't at university and you wanted to meet all those people, get that advice and get the leg up and get going, Yena is the place to go and find them. So if that existed when I was kind of starting university, I would have looked there. But I suspect you could find those kind of catalysts outside of university. However, on balance if you want the university experience obviously you have to go to university and of my friends who didn't go to university i can tell you they, they didn't have the university experience and they haven't
0: nobody i know has recreated that outside of university so uh you know stay in school kids <laughs> no really and, and i i know that i'm trying to shoot on as much as i can into our last few minutes but i just i, I thought you'd have an interesting answer on that and I, I i fully agree i think there's yes you can do it but you have to be very focused and it's much harder. Whereas I think there's an element of just university washing over you that gives you, gives you that, or at least you pay now very heavily for it. But this is a conversation for another time, Dave. So last question, and this is a, a short one, and this is something I ask all my guests and I'd be interested in your answers and, and very much take this as a guide. So it's it's your advice to three people. And these three people are at different points in their, their career. So one is just starting their career in consulting. So that And could be where you were, that sort of graduate, or just just got a consulting job. The other is four to five years in. So they're they're growing their career. They're in sort of the middle middle grades of their their consulting career. And the final one is, is somebody approaching partner or, or approaching that position in a business where they're going to take an equity stake? So that could be someone in a traditional management consulting firm who is going up to partner equally. It could be someone who's saying, right, I'm going to go and launch my own business or, or go and invest in something. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice to help them on their journey would you give to to each?
1: I'm strongly tempted to say that the piece of advice is very, very similar, no matter what stage you're at. And it comes back down to purpose, uh, personal purpose, and if you are the owner, manager, that the business purpose, which you would hope would align with your personal purpose. So... There are concepts, and I, I think it's the three-year itch and the seven-year itch, which are common in businesses, where a business founder or a business person might well get to the point where they say, Oh God, what, what am I doing, why I'm doing, why, why am I really here, oh, what is life, it's, it's the midlife crisis, and it's funny you should say kind of a four- to five-year person in, it's, technically you fall between those uh, those two itches, but when you're starting out, ask yourself, what is it that I desperately want to achieve from this? What is it that's going to what what is my purpose for even considering embarking on what is going to be a, an entirely different lifestyle and challenge than if you get a job? Then when you come up for your, your four to five years in, you should have done this many times, but reassess that purpose. Don't be scared if your purpose has changed. Your life circumstances almost certainly will have. Are you still meeting that purpose your personally? And is your business helping that? Or is your business not helping. And if your business isn't, if your business is actually holding you back from that purpose, it might be absolutely gut-wrenching, but you've got to ask yourself, is, is this right then? Quite simply. And again, when you're coming up to a, approaching partner, there are, approaching partner, that, that can mean all sorts of things. It can, you, sometimes, have you ever heard the phrase that everybody gets promoted to their own personal level of incompetence? Yeah. Yeah, right. So a lot of people will say, well, great, I, you know, I'm partner now or whatever. I don't get to do any of the work anymore. Or, so you think, well, So is that what you really wanted and reassess what is your now personal purpose in life? Does your business or does the business for which you work help you towards that, or is it taking you away from that? And if it's taking you away from that, ask the awkward and sometimes gut-wrenching question as to whether or not it's something you should continue. And I think that generally people are happier if they have got the alignment between personal purpose and, and work purpose. And, you know, I know that since the the birth of my two children, my my personal purpose has has shifted. And I know that that's part of the reason why I have a, a, I, I still promote a more flexible working environment at Storm and one of the reasons why I cling to it. So when I say what's my personal purpose and is Storm still achieving that, I can honestly, hand on heart, say yes. I can say that when I was young and needed a challenge, it did. When I was four or five years in and wanted to pivot into new investment opportunities, Storm was supporting me in doing that, and now that I've got a young family and like spending time with them, it's supporting me in doing that, so I'm very lucky that I've been able to answer the
0: question yes three times, um, and I will continue asking myself that question in years to come. Brilliant place for us to finish, Dave. And I think um, I know you said before you could do a whole two hours on purpose, and we may just Should do we that start
1: far. that now. No.
0: <laughs> well, well, <laughs> no. I would, but I know we have, we we can't do unfortunately. But uh, you never know. Maybe that time I can bring you a gift. Oh, That's um, fantastic. So, Dave, this has been great fun, and thank you for having me in today for the podcast and for everything else. And the last thing to ask is for anyone who's listened to this wants to find out more about yourself, about Storm, about I Am, about siteab about anything we've spoken about where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch?
1: Yeah, you're welcome to find me on LinkedIn. I believe I'm uh, DH Kelly. I certainly am on Twitter as well, where you can find me. But if you want to email me directly on the Storm Consultancy website, which is stormconsultancy.co.uk, if you hit the team page, um, you will find me and I believe my email address. And you'll certainly find my personal email address on the contact page on Storm. So if you feel so, so desire, you can drop me an email and say hi. Or I suppose I should probably back up my earlier claim that if you're in Bath and want to ring on the doorbell, <laughs> uh, you may or may not get a copy of Turning the Flywheel. But yeah, no, that's a serious one. I'm, I'm always interested to, to meet and hear from other entrepreneurs. It's what makes me kind of turn up to work each day and, and generally enjoy myself. So uh, if you're in the area and want to get a coffee, you
0: are always welcome fantastic Dave. well I'll put detail, all of those details in the show notes so people can find them um, I'll, I'll put the website people can go find the address themselves if they're that way inclined and all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week thanks very much Nick cheers Dave I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the climb in consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com And I look forward to hearing from you.